Hey, welcome to the Healthcare Nation podcast. I'm your host, Rick Chinata. Excited to bring you another episode on what's happening in the healthcare nation across the board. And it's a place where we engage thought leaders in the health sector on what's new and noteworthy. And I'm happy to report we've got a fantastic content expert with us today, Dr. Bruce Quinn. And we're going to go deep on a lot of trends in not only technology, but also federal health policy, the implications with respect to payment systems, and of course, chat GPT. First, a quick disclosure, the podcast is for informational purposes only, and the views expressed by the host and guests are solely theirs and not associated with any organization or educational institution. That said, a little bit about our guest, Dr. Bruce Quinn. Bruce is the principal of Bruce Quinn Associates, and he brings 20 years of real-world experience in corporate consulting to the, to the world of folks that he serves and his clientele across the health sector. He's a national expert on the Medicare system, business innovation, and helps many companies with respect to those areas and, and some very thorny problems. His focus, as I said, federal health policy, payment systems. And over the last few years, one of the things that I feel incredibly and compelled to mention is that Bruce has been tracking genomics policy since 2006 and has authored a series of well-known white papers in the field that have really covered the evolution of CS, CMS payment and uh, coverage for genomics. And uh, he has an incredible blog going, Discoveries in Health Policy, logged over 100,000 folks. I encourage people to seek that out and check it out. And lastly, Bruce's education, MD, PhD at Stanford, postdoc in neuroscience at MIT, UCLA path and neuropathology and an MBA at, at Kellogg. So uh, very good pedigree for my good friend, Bruce Quinn. With that said, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. And let me start with this. What have you been up to, my friend? Well, thanks for that, that kind introduction. You know, I've, I've heard celebrities and so on getting some fantastic introduction and then they're, you know, not sure how to move forward from there. But basically, you know, you were indicating I started my career with a laser-like focus to be a med school Alzheimer researcher. I did an MD-PhD for that, a postdoc a residency in what's called neuropathology, one of the tiniest fields. A few people a year do that. And I was on faculty at NYU and then Northwestern as an Alzheimer disease neuropathologist. And in 2000, I picked up an MBA and I jumped entirely out of that world into a completely different world, which was corporate strategy consulting. And I've mostly done that for almost 25 years, except for a few years working for the Medicare agency. What I'm up to now, I'm a freelance consultant or a self-employed consultant, and I help companies with new technologies, you know, biotechnologies, genomic technologies, and help them work their way through a healthcare system that's not always friendly to innovation. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, you know, my focus has been over the last few years, really looking at the startup space, innovation across the health sector, besides my educational and academic interests. And I think what's happening with respect to the impact of technology in healthcare is big. And let's, let me start with this. Can you share your insights on the impact of technology on healthcare? We've seen a lot, obviously, recently because of the pandemic with respect to, you know, its impact with telemedicine and remote care. 
but also genomics, precision medicine, and the payment structures. Because at least uh, in my side of the world, nothing gets done in innovation unless there's going to be some sort of incentive with respect to payment downrange. Let's hear your thoughts on that. I think if you take a, a long view, there, there are you know, huge changes in healthcare related to innovation. But when you take specific companies and Series A and Series B venture capital rounds and trying to get a new, new product launched or even fight their way through this legacy 40 or 50-year-old coding system, new, new companies nonetheless can have an extremely difficult time you know, one case study that I use is a company in the, the San Francisco Bay Area called HeartFlow. It has a novel way of, you know, judging cardiac sufficiency and blood flow problems using a CT scan as its starting point. And it, they raised a great deal of money, had a lot of publications, and it took literally years to get into the Medicare system. They initially couldn't enroll because they were denied the opportunity to enroll. I mean, that's like a, you know, a black student not being allowed to enroll in a college. They weren't allowed to enroll in the Medicare program. I had another company that had the same problem. Then they were you know, priced at zero. If you look up some of these companies, they're spending money on hundreds of thousands of dollars on lobbyists. So I think CMS has really been struggling to do things that are new and, and, and digital, aside from you know, literal telemedicine itself, like the visit, which they went light years forward with the pandemic. But outside of that, you know, new software and pathology, new software and radiology, these, these cutting edge things may either collide with the AMA coding system or they collide with something in the payment system, or they collide with this policy goal of having things be bundled. You know, the idea is that we'll pay you a fixed fee, we'll bundle things, but it, it doesn't work if you really try to stretch the envelope because the old bundle or the old package just doesn't match what the new stuff is going to. Yeah, and this, this may be the wrong way to, to phrase it, but this, this, either it's a lack of understanding or a misalignment, but what I'm hearing, and, and in fact, what I've experienced in, over the last couple of years, is you have these fantastic, in many cases, even game-changing ideas, but on their path to commercialization, they fail to recognize that in the healthcare delivery side, on the provider side, when it comes to insurance, primarily the CMS piece, if you don't take that into account and understand what kind of impact it's going to have on your idea, you could get very far down the road and it is a, a pretty rude awakening and a reckoning that folks have to face up to if they don't have the kind of CM, you know, CPT codes and CMS recognition with respect to reimbursement. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I see is that if you look at, if you compare CMS, the Medicare agency and the FDA, the FDA is extremely specialized, right? You get somebody that works on cardiac drugs or somebody that works on diabetes drugs or somebody that works on implants like new knee joints and hip joints. And in the Medicare program, if you look at the local structure where there are about seven different regions of local decisions, those are done by generalists. And even if you look at the coverage group nationally, you know, generally they get things that they treat as generalists and don't have the grasp of, of what the nuances are or what's really important. 
you know, I've, I've, I've joked that the, the people you're working with at the FDA, you may be frustrated sometimes, but they, you can be assured they can pronounce the names of the things they're working on in a triglycerides or whatever. Um, right. So there's this tendency, I think, over on the Medicare side to be generalists. So you've got cutting edge new technologies. Oh, I can give you an example. I was in a meeting with a critical issue and the senior person at CMS said, well, the FDA never approved software as a device. That can't be done, you know, which is completely 180 degrees wrong. It wasn't even close to the ballpark, right? It's completely wrong. So that's, that's the sort of thing you run against. And supposedly this person had been working on the problem for a year. I also think when folks are coming, particularly the startups that are, that are out there and, and with SVB's, let's just say, collapse most recently and the tightening up of monies across the board for, for startups and early stage companies to be very thoughtful and intentional about where they invest is a prudent decision. The biggest piece of that is also looking downrange and having a return on investment for their investors and shareholders. And if there's no CPT code and reimbursement, obviously a, a problem. But let me pick up on a theme that you said, and there's so much moving now, and it's moving so fast with respect to artificial intelligence, machine learning. We know GPT three and four. Two things. It's two-part question. First of all, a little bit on the clinical, the application. I'd I'd like you to weigh in because you're you're clearly a content expert on that. But also, what's happening with leveraging that to advance the regulatory process? And is there also recognition? I know the FDA is doing this on qualifying it for reimbursement as an adjunct to clinician decision making. I know there was a lot in that question. Yeah, let me unpack that by taking it at, at sort of three, three levels successfully or three circles. So the, the inner circle, I'm a self-employed consultant. I work with a lot of technology. I have to do things quickly working with different clients. And I use, in, in my case, GPT-4 regularly. You know, I write a three-minute script for a video and I pass it through GTP 4 and it improves it. Or I have a maybe a half hour I spend on a four-paragraph memo for a client on some specific question. And I find I pass that through GPT-4 and it improves that too. So there's a lot of little daily things that I, I'm using it for summarizing and rewriting and things like that. Now, routinely after a couple of months. The second level, I had a project a couple of weeks ago where I wrote a 20-page white paper about Medicare's approach to artificial intelligence. And I wrote the white paper entirely by asking questions to GPT-4. It started out as I was really sort of experimenting for myself, and then I got to 12 questions in 15 pages, and I thought, this actually reads pretty well. And I gave it to some friends, and they liked it, so I had it set up as a, a color white paper and some glossy copies printed. So what it does simply as writing is really exceptional. You ask it a question, it gives you 10 bullet points that are organized and very fluent in English. And then you can say, please in French or please in German. And a half second later, you've got the same thing in French or German. Yeah. So I said there were three levels. The first was my personal work. The second was my 20-page white paper about CMS policy and AI. Well, and then the third thing is, you know, how is it really going to impact real healthcare? And I have a firm conviction we, we really don't know yet. There was an article on this, I think, in, in JAMA in the last week or two. Um, 
you know, you can show that GPT-4 will pass medical boards at 90% or 85% or something like that, or pass law boards, pass the bar with 90%. And then there was a opposite article that was saying, well, if you give it real world hard problems, it's only right 60% of the time. So there was this debate, is it right 60%? Is it right 90%? And I think it's way too early when, when we have systems that have not been trying to, trained on healthcare information and not tuned to answer healthcare problems. I think it's, it's too early to make any calls, except that the effect is obviously going to be big. But I think we'll know much more a year or two from now, from now when we have more health-trained uh, systems. How do you see genomic sequencing impacting disease prevention, treatment in the future? How will it fit into the healthcare delivery system? And walk us through how that will also be reimbursed and how it will be recognized by the insurers so that it's, it will be, you know, it will continue to be funded. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. I'm, I'm trained originally as a pathologist and partly as a result, a lot of my consulting work, not exclusively, but a lot of it's in genomics. And also it's been an area that's moved so fast that it just generates a lot of problems and new regulations and new issues and new coverage decisions. There are incredible ways that genomics has already impacted healthcare. You know, one that, that's been huge has been non-invasive prenatal testing, where you can avoid amniocentesis in, in most cases. That's been adopted over the last 10 years and, and become widely accepted here and in other countries. Another example that's newer, but actually a somewhat similar application of the technology is using DNA testing in the blood to pick up transplant rejection, like kidney transplant rejection. So traditionally for transplant rejection, which is a huge social problem due to the lack of transplants and the lack of, you know, you don't want people getting second transplants. You want to preserve the transplant they've got. There are just a few basic tests like blood urea nitrogen. And if it went up, then the kidney was probably re rejecting, but it also meant that the kidney was so badly off, it couldn't function anymore properly. And you can now detect that donor DNA from the donor kidney being leaked into the blood if the kidney's not healthy. And that's more sensitive in advance of the, the old, you know, 100-year-old biomarkers. So that's been a big advance. Another one is detecting relapse of cancers, which is just coming into the forefront now. It's becoming clear that in some cancers, you can detect relapse months ahead of what you would see on a CT scan or an MRI scan. So this applies especially to those cancers where you hope to have a clean resection. You have breast cancer, you have a clean lumpectomy. Or you have a smaller colon cancer, you have a clean colectomy. And so hopefully you wouldn't need adjuvant therapy, meaning chemotherapy after the clean surgery, and hopefully you won't come back. But you give people quarterly CT scans, you're looking for that needle in a haystack. And it's now become clear, and Medicare covers this, that you can pick this up probably better in plasma than you can with, or earlier in many cases, than with imaging. So those are a few examples where there's stuff that's here now and being used now, and in the examples I gave being covered by. Yeah, and, and we're, we're going to see a lot more, right, in the, on the, I guess, the blood specimen diagnostic side with respect to early detection. Is that correct? I and mean, I'm thinking that in advance, as you noted. Absolutely. The, the PT, there are a number MR. of companies. 
there are a number of companies that have gone into early detection for screening purposes. I was talking about early detection after you've had your lumpectomy or mastectomy and looking for the thing coming back as soon as possible. But we will be able to use exactly the same technology and at some point pick up cancers as a screening test that might be taken annually. And there are very important cancers like pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, where there are no screening tests now, the way we have with colon or prostate. Uh, we could obviously use much, much better tests for screening prostate cancer. So that'll, that'll be coming also at some point. One of the things I wrote about a month or two ago is that I was starting to see some really nice publications in the genetic space looking at outcomes more rigorously than we've often seen in the past. So there was a paper in the field of pharmacogenetics where we look at maybe 10 genes involved in drug metabolism. And rather than just saying pharmacogenetics is the wave of the future, pharmacogenetics will save trillions of dollars, they actually had a large population they had a randomized controlled trial, and they found the pharmacogenetics reduced the adverse events like from 30% to 20%. Not a miraculous amount, no, but a meaningful amount, which means also you help about one patient in 10. And then one of the companies in the early detection space published a very elaborate model last fall where they predicted a reduction in stage three and four tumors if the test as it exists now was widely used. But they didn't talk about eliminating stage three and four tumors or catching all cancers early. They talked about, I think, a 15 or 20% reduction in stage three and four cancers. Again, I was so excited about this because it was real data or it was well modeled and it was giving a result that people could really believe and then make a decision on rather than hype or, or just hand-waving extrapolations. So I think yeah, the genomics field yeah, certainly needs better to... than directional, right? When you think about it that way, Ab absolutely. No so I think the genomics field, for its part, should concentrate on having predicting concrete results that are like twenty percent better, and not hand waving results that they'll they'll fix everything. Oh, great points. L let me ask you this: with respect to payment side and the pricing for gen you know genomics testing and the the value proposition therein. And I'm asking this because I think, maybe I'm wrong, there, there's even a move to change the way we look at colonoscopy from, you know, the mail-in test, the Cologuard type versus having the actual colonoscopy. Yeah, you're giving me a chance to talk about one of the things that I'm most proud of that the Medicare agency has done in the last couple of years. So, right, we've had several methods for detecting or, or, or early diagnosis of colon cancer. You know, classically in the United States, we use a lot of colonoscopies. I just wrote a blog last night that here in a moment last fall kind of dissed colonoscopies and said that they would prefer to have more of the fecal testing and colonoscopies were not the best first line prevention and colonoscopies were an overuse of health resources. I'm quoting the Medicare agency from November 18th. And I thought, whoa, that's a, yeah. that's a, you know, a hardball thrown right at the colonoscopy industry. But so we've had colonoscopy, we've had stool-based tests, and we're on really, literally on the cusp in, in months or a few quarters of having blood-based tests that'll be about as accurate, you know, 80% sensitive, 90% specific, that kind of test. And 
I started by saying, I, you know, I was kind of jumping in my chair and saying, I'm so excited that you're giving me the chance to talk about this. Two years ago, a company brought a blood-based colon test to Medicare and Medicare did not feel it was good enough to cover. It, you know, it was kind of a first generation test. But what Medicare did was they said, we will cover tests that are this sensitive and this specific. And so that coverage for a blood-based next generation genomic test is written by Medicare already. And all you have to do is meet their bar of a certain sensitivity and a certain specificity. That's exactly the kind of bright, shining policymaking that we should be doing with, with clear definitions and very forward-looking. So when that test gets approved by the FDA, it'll be covered basically the next day by Medicare. They won't have an extra one or two or three-year process to go through. Yeah, great example. And I, I wish that was the case with every, you know, development and promising diagnostic test. It would certainly increase the incentive to pursue, particularly during tough times and raising money, et cetera. Let me ask you one thing, Bruce. You know, I do believe there's a lot of silos when we look at this. And, and by the way, full disclosure, I am, I am bullish on pharma. I wasn't perhaps a couple of years ago. I am now. And I see more with respect to the genomic side, genetics and working together and some of the new technologies as really being incredibly promising. But I still think there are silos across the board. And now with the introduction of, let's just say, the more advanced computing power, you know, AI and everything we've been talking about, I, I hope they, that they start to break down and are more synthesized. But I'd love to have your thoughts on that from almost an insider's perspective. I'm trained as a pathologist, so that's my home turf for the specialty of pathology, which is a diagnostic specialty. Then I've always felt some kinship with my sister diagnostic specialty, which is radiology. But if you look at you know, what happens in genomics and what happens like AI and radiology, there's been very little overlap between the two. And they just sort of go, go on in silos in their own independent world. Um, there's an example, you know, that one of the screening tests we have now is low-dose CT, which is an annual test screening for lung cancer that's been shown to improve survival. And it's not very accurate. You get a lot of little nodules that you don't know if they're going to be positive or not. So both sides have been working on that. There are blood tests if you get a one or two centimeter small unknown nodule. There are some blood tests that will improve the accuracy of what to do next. And also in radiology, there's a lot of work going on AI methods, machine learning methods to know what to do next. And yet you never hear of any cross-reaction between the two of them. They're, they're done completely separately. One of the advantages, obviously, that the AI methods have is that the marginal cost is so low or you know, extremely low so that once something's in place, you can keep running that AI program on the, on the images. And to some extent, the the genomic marginal cost is, is not incredibly high, but there's certainly hundreds of dollars usually of marginal cost for the genomic side. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going back to your, your comments with respect to applying the chat GPT and how it can synthesize and just your, your characterization of pathology as one diagnostic discipline and radiology as another the same type of artificial intelligence could be applied to both. Again, synthesize it. Wow. I mean, we're, we're talking about 
accelerating the ability to diagnose in, in such new and novel and exciting ways. And I know that's being done. I'm just putting that out there as a comment. Yeah, I think it'll see things that we don't necessarily quickly see. It's just like, you know, you hear that computers in chess or the game Go will come up with moves that even human experts just don't see. And so I think they may see connections that we don't see. That's that's right. Right. And, and that brings me to, you know, new and exciting things. That's what we're talking about here. There was breakthrough coverage introduced as a 2023 legislative line item, obviously, that was out there and goes back a bit. In fact, during the Trump administration, the bill was never passed. I think the current administration's bringing it back for Medicare coverage for innovative technologies. I think it's pretty exciting. I wanted to ask you, can you explain this for our audience, the concept of breakthrough devices, why they're, well, breakthrough technologies, devices, pharma, why it's important? And I would say, again, on the kind of life cycle of ideation all the way through to getting a product or a, a, a drug out there. There's actually a history of FDA and CMS and, and other organizations like AdvaMed talking about special pathways for, for example, breakthrough devices. It goes back five or six years, maybe a little longer than that, you know, well before COVID or even maybe before the Trump administration. What happened? The, the term breakthrough device comes from the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed in the last week's of the Obama era, so it was passed at the end of 2016. So that's where the FDA gets the category breakthrough devices, and they are specifically defined by law. It's not something that you think is a breakthrough device. It's something that meets one of several rules. It has to be a new kind of technology, an unmet need, a major medical illness, and several other criteria. And then, often somewhere around the phase one or phase two trials, it gets labeled a breakthrough device by the FDA, it goes through a breakthrough process. So it gets more attention at the FDA and accelerated review and so on. Now, what happened with that back on the Medicare side? In the last year of the Trump administration, they introduced a and passed a regulation called MCIT, Medicare Coverage for Innovative Technologies. And this guaranteed four years of coverage for anything that came through the FDA as a breakthrough device. And that was finalized actually about the same week as the, that January 6th fiasco. When the Biden administration came in, they immediately put that in the freezer and then canceled it, meaning they put it on hold and then canceled it. There had been objections to the Trump MCIT Medicare coverage for innovation, innovative technology. People said, well, what if the device works badly? What if it's not well validated in the Medicare population? You know, what if it kills people? And I, I felt most of those were, you know, a parade of horribles that probably wouldn't happen. You know, if, if the device really didn't work, it wouldn't meet the FDA's review and get approved at all. That's the first barrier. If it didn't work very well, doctors would almost never use it and so on. So I think that the problems were kind of self-limiting if the device did not work well. On the other hand, and I heard this in a speech by Scott Gottlieb, it gave you guaranteed coverage around the phase of phase two as, as long as the device was truly promising. And that would make it easier to get investment for your phase three trials and it would make the whole system work better. So the people that came up with that 
actually had a very savvy vision of what they were trying to accomplish, Scott Gottlieb and others. What the Biden administration has come up with is a new term called TCET, Transitional Coverage for Emerging Technologies. And it, it really hasn't been announced yet. They've had town halls under that umbrella, under, the, under that flag. They have did a public workshop about what they call coverage with evidence development, where the Medicare coverage is paired only to a clinical trial. But they haven't said what they're doing. And so whereas the Trump administration, for better or worse, had an exact, very short, simple, concrete plan and completed it, the Biden administration has got sort of a waving flag called transitional coverage for innovation, and it's not, it's not clear what it will actually be yet. So how, do, but how, how does that impact or how does that crosswalk to CMS in, with respect to implementation of the new law? Or, or the well, TCIT oh, you, itself. you brought up an additional thing. So I was talking about things the Trump administration did and things the Biden administration did. No, we're tracking with you, it, but, but yeah, yeah. Which, and that was inside the walls of the agency and with its own rulemaking and processes. Mm -hmm. The other thing, which has been in the last Congress and the current Congress is legislation, which would basically be what I described as the Trump plan. So breakthrough devices would automatically get four years of Medicare coverage. And that could be done by the House and the Senate voting and making it so. And that's been introduced as a bill. Now, of course, you know, there are five or 10,000 bills introduced in every Congress and a few hundred passed. So there are, you know, bills go into the four digits, like Bill 8,612. And the number of bills we know that they pass is like one a week or one a month. So, yeah. So there's also been legislation that would do this from from the Hill and send it over like a paper airplane to the Medicare agency. You know, I've heard a lot in the uh, just discussions of folks I've, I've been talking with about ARPA and what's happening, upcoming competitions with that, a pathway to maybe get recognition, some funding. Tell us a little bit about the area of focus for ARPA, ARPA-H. What kind of innovative ideas are they looking for, if you could? Sure. So, you know, the NIH has traditionally focused on more toward the side of basic research and fairly basic clinical research. And they obviously fund some large clinical trials, but it's not the, you know, the, the, the reason for the existence of the NIH is not to fund huge clinical trials. A lot of their money goes in other places. People have been generally very happy what, with what things like ARPA, the defense, DARPA, the Defense Projects Agency, or BARDA, the Biodefense Agency, has done. And they felt that's been a good way to fund innovative projects, fast track them, and really accomplish new technology innovation. So based on the model of BARDA for biotechnology, biodefense, and the model of DARPA, where we hear the internet and other things came from, there is ARPA for Health, an advanced projects re re agency for health, which is just getting launched now. It has several goals. It has four. I'm not sure I know them by heart. And they recently did a small contest. If you, as far as I can tell, it's a quite small contest, like a $10,000 prize or something like that for innovative ideas in healthcare. So I think there's a lot of promise in ARPA-H, which is Advanced Projects Health, but it's still in the really in the 
going down the runway and in the launch. I think, and I hope you'd agree, I like to see a lot of this moonshot, competitive, at the very least, top of mind awareness for what's happening in breakthrough medical, biomed, med tech device and, and pharma world from, from the administration. You agree on that? Yeah, I think the difficulty is getting some of that vision and enthusiasm. Like domestic policy council or places like that and, and National Science Foundation and moving it into the grittier world where you actually have patients with medical record numbers and claims being processed and DRGs for inpatients and stuff like that. So there, that's actually part of the gap, I think, is, is that conceptual one. Yeah, and I could get in a little trouble for saying this, but I have been a believer that innovation in the health sector is really coming out of the private side of the sector. I'm not to say that there's less on the academic side, but it just moves faster. It's more nimble and it is, I think, flush with great ideas. And I do you, not you, want to see that, that blunted. Right? You've given me a chance to get myself into trouble, which is <laughs> my impression is coming from my MBA habit. I've got an MBA in health strategy and in healthcare and like thinking that way. That too much of our, our focus in economics in healthcare has been on the side of sort of the broad public health economics. You know, like we spend $4 trillion on healthcare and we should only spend $3 trillion. Well, sure, you know, but, but I tend to come from the other side that, well, how can we make the business economics and business dynamics do the things we want it to do? So it's more of an MBA hat than an MPH hat. And it really takes both, right? You've, you've got to be bilingual. And, I mean, and it, I think it that's, probably that's, takes both, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where we, we have the, I think, biggest impact factor. Along those lines, and back to the administration, I know that the Biden administration announced some goals and priorities on the biotech, biomanufacturing side of things related to, to the president's executive order. I don't know a lot about it, a full disclosure with respect to expertise, but I think it's about harnessing more on the biotech, biomanufacturing research side, which I believe is a positive for startups, existing companies, and also a way to address some of our dependency, perhaps, that we saw lacking when it comes down to personal protective gear, et cetera. What would you say are the big key points in that report, if you could bring this up? Sure. This is a Biden administration report. I think it's about 80 pages long that came out two or three weeks ago. I think it really does stem from the terror we felt at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and the lockdown on, on some kinds of international trade and shipping and things. And we thought, oh, my God. You know, we're not going to have things we absolutely have to have from China. We're not going to have core chemical components and so on. I think it's also of a piece with the strong Biden governmental interest in keeping a chip industry on shore, a computer chip industry on shore. So we want to be sure we have everything we need for a powerful world-leading computer chip industry. And we want to be sure we have everything we need for a powerful world-leading bio biotech, biomanufacturing industry. I think that's where it really comes. It, from what I saw in it, it, it doesn't have much or maybe doesn't need to have much that addresses things like, you know, clinical genetic testing. They assume if you've got the 
giant sequencers and chemistries and stuff, you'll be able to do the clinical testing downstream. Right. Any, any impact on startups or any bright light for that world? I would think there is. I don't really work on the biomanufacturing side, so I, 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 I can't say specifically. Okay. So listen, Bruce, as we bring things to a close, tell us what's on your mind. I'd love to know, and I try to be optimistic on this, where do you see as the challenges and what are the bright lights as we move forward and what should folks in the healthcare nation be thinking about from your perspective? Sure. You know, you made a comment that you might get yourself in trouble with a remark a couple minutes ago, and I think it was someone like, Churchill or Teddy Roosevelt said, if nobody's criticizing you, you're probably not doing very much. So on that vein, I'm you know turning 65 this year and I'm trying to be a little more outspoken about things that don't work. I'm working on a white paper right now called Elephants in the Room about problems in healthcare innovation and in the genomics that people know in the field, but really avoid talking about. Often, like let, let's say you find that the Medicare agency completely doesn't understand some of the things it's doing. But nobody wants to say that because you don't want them to stop taking your phone calls, right? So it's an elephant in the room that it doesn't get broadcast. So there's some things like that. I've seen local Medicare coverage decisions take several years, three or four years when they easily could have been made in a month or two. But again, nobody talks about that because they don't want to offend any of the power makers, power, power play people in the first place. So I think it's Really, we need a full vision that goes right down to the the paid claim and the insurance plan and from the you know genomic innovation all the way to there for the biotechnology innovation all the way to there. And it's having more people with some visibility into that end stage because it's so critical. And you know, minor regulations, minor rules, minor delays or roadblocks can really damage the, the innovation pathway right at the end where it's most sensitive. You know, we talk about in pharma, we talk about fast fail. You wanna fail in the mouse lab or you wanna fail in the phase one trial. And with reimbursement issues, you fail all the way at the end after all the investments been made and all the decisions have been made. So I think it's, we need to take that as a, a, an important choke point and learn more about it, talk more about it, and have it be part of our lingua franca when we talk about innovation. Great point. And shining a bright light on that, I think, is absolutely essential if we're going to be able to get, as I say, far too often, further, faster on the road to helping everyone here who needs healthcare, but also the innovative side so we can have great ideas that lifts everyone up across the board. Bruce, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate having you on, and we're going to do it again, my friend. Rick, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for so much for the chance to be Yeah, and everyone, please check out Dr. Quinn's blog. You will find it absolutely fascinating, all things policy and what's happening in the world of the regulatory piece of federal health policy, and I think everything that might be coming up with respect to discoveries in health policy, please check it out.